What is peer learning? And how can this pedagogical approach be harnessed in the chemistry classroom to enhance students' attitudes and learning within their discipline? Join us for this episode of The Teaching Lab, where we talk with professors Heather Miller and Melissa Saruji about the impact of peer learning within their chemistry classrooms. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Teaching Lab. I am your host, Angela Bauer. Each week, I will keep you current on the latest findings regarding teaching and learning innovations that foster deep learning and inclusivity in your classrooms. Whether you are currently a busy STEM professor or an aspiring academic, this convenient on-the-go professional development podcast promises to keep you at the top of your teaching game. Dr. Miller and Dr. Saruji, welcome to the Teaching Lab. Well, thank you. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about the courses that you teach at High Point University? I know you both teach similar courses, but if you could mention what those are and then tell us a bit about your research program that you conduct with undergraduates. Sure. So we do have a Bachelor of Science degree in biochemistry here at High Point University. So Melissa and I teach not only our general chemistry courses, but courses within that BS Biochem curriculum. We teach Biochem 1 and 2, corresponding labs, and also some upper-level electives in our areas of, of expertise. So for me, I study the biochemistry of gene expression, both human gene expression and that of HIV-1. So my research interests kind of lie along transcription and splicing and, and how host factors, human host factors, are used by HIV to express their own genes. And I'm a cancer biologist by training, and I'm very interested in experimental therapeutics that specifically target breast cancer tumors versus normal surrounding tissues. So a lot of my research involves signal transduction pathways, and in terms of teaching and pedagogy, I'm very interested in developing and using methodologies to improve critical thinking in the classroom. And these range from designing and implementing inquiry-based laboratories, using collaborative group learning in the classroom, as well as growth mindset interventions. Okay, and I should mention that both Dr. Miller and Dr. Saruji's courses and their research program are very popular with our students here at High Point University, and that includes biochemistry students, chemistry students, and likewise our biology majors. So it's exciting to have you here. The reason we are talking with you today is we would love to learn more about your research your scholarship of teaching and learning research that pertains to peer learning in the chemistry classroom. And in particular, what you've honed in on is the usefulness of peer learning to enhance math skills with respect to students enrolled in chemistry courses. So let's talk a bit, first of all, about peer learning. Let's share with our audience, what is peer learning? Sure. Well, peer learning is something that happens sometimes or often naturally in our own classes. You may, as an instructor, already have students working in small groups. If you teach a laboratory course, you might likely have students already working in lab partnerships. And so what peer learning is, there's a number of definitions. The one I like is that students are learning directly from their peers without any immediate intervention from an instructor. So as you can imagine, that takes shape in a number of ways in classrooms and laboratories. And so most of our work that we've, we've done so far on peer learning has looked at the fact that when you structure these peer groups, think of assigning lab partners or assigning small groups in a lecture course, when we structure these based on differences among our students, the research supports that there's higher learning outcomes and there's higher retention of material 
when we have these heterogeneous groups compared to homogeneous groups. Okay, so is that your work then that was published in Life Sciences 2012? Yeah, that's where it really got started, where Melissa and I were looking at a course we both taught. It was a biotechnology course, and what was really unique was that when we thought about what is the heterogeneity in this group of students, it was crystal clear. We were teaching these courses, some sections offered to graduate students at North Carolina State University, and the same course offered to undergraduates, but they were in separate sections. So as I read more about the peer learning work, I viewed this as a really good opportunity. Why don't we mix the grad students with the undergrads? And especially in the life sciences or, or any real bench science, these students we thought could go on and really benefit from that, from that partnership, right? If they're gonna go on to graduate school or in the workforce, they're not gonna be working in isolation. They're gonna be working with their peers. And especially in graduate studies, you'll be eventually mentoring a student younger than you or with less experience than you. So we viewed this as a way to really capitalize on these differences and turn it into something positive. So I'm really curious, how did your undergraduate and your graduate students react to that type of peer group assignment? Were there objections? Did the undergraduates feel intimidated? Yeah, those were definitely concerns that we had. We didn't want to see a situation where the graduate students felt that the undergrads were a burden to them, that they were more advanced, and here they had to teach someone else. And we didn't want to see the undergraduates potentially have that kind of slacker attitude that the graduate student knows what he or she's doing. They're going to handle this lab. Uh -huh. So we were concerned about that. Of course, we, we surveyed our students. We used an attitudinal survey that we created, and it was an overwhelmingly positive response from both sides. So we expected that the undergrads might perceive this as a great thing, right? If you had to be assigned a partner, they thought it was great. Somebody with more biotechnology or lab experience really helped them through. But what we didn't expect was how dramatically the grad students responded. The more advanced students said they, if given the choice, would have that same pairing. They enjoyed working with the younger students, and I think they recognized the benefit that they got out of that relationship. That's always useful data to do the sales pitch then to your next <laughs> section yes. of students. You can say, look at this data. This tells you how it will improve your learning or improve your enjoyment of the class. Dr. Saruji, you published a follow-up paper on collaborative learning using heterogeneous groups varying in academic ability. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, we had such positive outcomes with Heather's study previously that we wanted to extrapolate this on the same class, but instead of using differences in academic rank, we wanted to use differences in academic ability. So in this particular study, we formed groups of three to four students based on previous performance on an exam in the class, and then organize them based on high performers and low performers. So we have a group mixed of different academic abilities. And what we saw over the course of the semester was that students who were participants in these heterogeneous collaborative groups had higher learning outcomes, and especially for our lower achieving students at the start of the semester, how you would characterize them as C and D performing students, we saw especially in this cohort that they had an increase in retention of the material by the end of the semester. Kind of a side uh, effect of this as well that was very positive is we had lower cases of academic dishonesty because there was accountability within the group. 
So based on these results, we continue, or at NC State University, they're continuing to use these collaborative groups because they've shown that they can really improve the learning outcomes in this course. Okay, those are really wonderful results. And then with respect to your high-performing students, just side note, it doesn't impede their performances, but it doesn't necessarily enhance either. It's, it's, it's more enjoyable for them. It's more enjoyable for them, and the literature shows that if you're a high-performing student, you're going to be performing at a high level as it is. They highly favored that they liked working together with their peers, and they didn't mind being assigned groups based on their current performance. Okay, great. Moving now into your recent publication about peer learning and math skills in a general chemistry course, what were you thinking with respect to exploiting heterogeneous peer learning to promote success in your Gen Chem course, and, and how do you tie in math skills with all of that? So how did you get started on this? Yeah, so we continued, Melissa and I continued with our work on peer learning, and, and when we transitioned to High Point University as, as members of the chemistry department, we were looking at, uh, in particular, our first year general chemistry sequence. And we, again, we thought, well, what makes this group of students heterogeneous? We've got really mostly females. We've got mostly biology majors. They're mostly freshmen. So there, there aren't these different academic levels, per se. What makes them different? And so what became clear very quickly is that the students that we get as freshmen come into college with a wide range of math skills. And we're talking about basic algebra and below. So to give you some example of what I mean by that, the concepts that are what we would term basic math that are utilized in chemistry would include things like solving for x, fractions, decimals, percentages, scientific notation, and significant figures. So decades of research has gone into identifying students who as freshmen may not have the current math capabilities that would indicate success in chemistry. So that's been going on for decades. There are a number of instruments to measure how a student is doing at that time in their mathematical ability, namely the SAT math score or the ACT or a number of other instruments. So it wasn't that we were looking to be better at predicting it. We knew that students, generally speaking, who had lower math SAT scores, like lower than 550, were going to earn relatively lower grades in general chemistry. So our charge was really how do we, we know there's this difference, how do we structure our peer groups or our lab partnerships so that we can promote better math skills leading to more chemistry success. So this was a little bit of a challenge. As you can imagine, we had multiple sections that were our control group. Multiple sections of this general chemistry lab were our experimental groups. And this time, we had to use university-reported math SAT scores for students involved in the study in order to kind of structure our peer groups. The way that we did that was we looked at their math SAT scores and we created partnerships with the top quartile and the bottom quartile. And then we made additional partnerships with the second and the third quartile. So in general terms, we had one high math SAT score student with a lower math SAT student. And of course, our control sections, we said, just pick a partner, work with whoever you'd like. But we did look to see that our, you know, our average scores across each section were basically the same. 
And then what were some of the outcomes that you measured in response to this structured approach to peer learning with respect to math skills? Well, since we are focused on math skills, we wanted to kind of take their temperature, of course, at the beginning and the end of the course. So we designed a pre-post short math assessment just on some of those basic math skills that I mentioned that are really crucial to success in general chemistry. Um, so we offered that at the beginning and again at the end of the semester. That was loosely based on the ACS Toledo exam that's utilized. Other assessment methods were the midterm, the final, their lab notebooks, etc. Now what's interesting about this group was that we didn't see any significant changes in these assessment methods, whether the students were with a partner with different math skills or they self-selected a partner. Basically we didn't see any statistically significant difference. So we thought, okay, so as far as these learning outcomes, there wasn't any harm, right? But we didn't see any benefit like we may have seen in previous studies. Mm -hmm. What really stood out, again, the common theme, is these attitudinal differences. When we surveyed our students, we definitely, again, were concerned about a student recognizing that he or she might be the low math performer. We didn't let the students know that that's the basis for our pairing, but of course we were concerned that that would be, that could even change that student's perception of the class. And even worse, it could change their perception of chemistry as a discipline, and we of course didn't want to see that happen. So I'm happy to report that the students reported equal contribution to the group, meaning it wasn't just one student kind of pulling the weight. And even though some of them commented, you know, we take these student evaluations that are anonymous, some of the students may have commented, I recognize my partner struggled especially with math and so I don't know that they really knew how these partnerships were structured, mm -hmm. but they recognized there was a difference at least in their partnership. Okay? Right. So those working in the assigned groups though I'm happy to say they had a much more positive shift when asked about their chemistry knowledge from the beginning to the end of the semester. The students in which we assigned them a partner with a different math ability really demonstrated a shift in both their chemistry knowledge as being higher and their more confidence in their laboratory skills as well. So although we didn't see the changes in the, the learning outcomes so much, again, the common theme is we see these attitudinal changes when we structure these groups. Whether they think they want to be assigned a partner or not, mm -hmm. in the end they report that they like it. Okay. I just wanted to add a little side note that your lower performing math students, while there wasn't a statistically significant difference in their outcomes, you were pretty darn close, weren't mm -hmm. you? Yeah. yeah, it was a close change, it may not have been statistically significant, yeah. but we were happy to see at least those changes in perception. Well, that's a really positive outcome of this study then, that you had this impact on students' attitudes toward their chemistry courses. I'm wondering where you intend to go next with this work. So using the data and such positive outcomes, we want to explore this property in a different way. And in particular, we want to see how peer learning may intersect with growth mindset or this ability of students to think positively about chemistry and math and that they can do it and they have the abilities to be successful. Specifically in our general chemistry classroom where the initial study took place, we are looking at how peers can promote growth mindset to each other and how this may affect their perceptions and their learning outcomes in that class. And to extrapolate that to upper level courses, currently in our biochemistry class, we're looking at how we can enforce the benefits 
benefits of growth mindset and how that may lead to higher achievement of learning outcomes as well as improved attitudes and grit with these students. And our preliminary data so far are suggestive that we do see a difference in overall cumulative learning of this material. So it may suggest that growth mindset messaging may encourage retention of these skills. But yeah. the data is very preliminary, but we're excited to see where this study leads. And this is important. This is an initiative of encouraging these students to think positively about themselves and about what they can do. And it's something that's being implemented all across High Point University's campus, not just in the chemistry department, but also Angie and your department and biology and communications and English, there are many faculty who are implementing and integrating growth mindset messaging and novel pedagogical strategies to incorporate that in their own courses and studying it in very meaningful ways. You are conducting this work as a part of your responsibilities as a growth mindset scholar, correct? Dr. Correct. Saruti, can you tell us a bit about that program? So this program is part of our High Point University's Quality Enhancement Plan, and it provides uh, tools and resources for faculty who are interested in learning more about growth mindset and developing novel pedagogical strategies to implement and use that with students in their own disciplines. So it really provides this nice forum for faculty all across campus and in different disciplines to get together and discuss what they find on the ground level mm -hmm. <laughs> in the trenches, what works, what doesn't work. For us, this is really groundbreaking because especially in the sciences and some other disciplines, not a lot of growth mindset research has been conducted. A lot of it has been in, in psychology or through the K through 12 level, but not at mm -hmm. the college level. So it's really interesting to see what our colleagues are using and what they're finding is effective with their student. Give us more detail about your experimental design and your current growth mindset study. So the course is a 3,000 level biochemistry survey class. So it's a one semester course that gives students a foundation on basic biochemistry concepts all the way from macromolecules through metabolism for those in the chemistry field. And in this particular cohort of students, the way that we're implementing growth mindset is really through a multi-pronged approach. So what we're trying to do is incorporate growth mindset related messaging in the class. And the way we do this is really try to extrapolate on the essence of what the class is. So using the biochemistry of our own physiology and how that applies to the way we think and how organisms are dynamic and they change. They can change their biochemistry to adapt to different environments. And using those prompts, then relating things back to students in reflective exercises where they now need to think about their own life and things that they've already accomplished and done to achieve obstacles. And so what this does is further cement in these students that when difficult and challenging situations happen, that they already have the inherent ability to overcome them because they've already done it in their own lives. And using that, how can they now be in a very difficult class that requires them to use prerequisite knowledge from many other courses, synthesize and analyze that together, and overcome that initial mental barrier it's hard, I don't want to do this, that very fixed mindset to overcome that. So that's one strategy we're doing. Another one is another reflective idea where students now reflect on the material of the class using visual concept mapping. And concept mapping, many of you are probably already familiar with this, is a way for students to map concepts and ideas visually and the connections that bring them together. So this is a way that students now can take these very difficult concepts and represent them in a different way maybe that they're not familiar with putting them together before. Another exercise that we do in the class to incorporate messaging is reflective exam wrappers. 
So these exam wrappers are different in the sense that they incorporate messaging within the prompts that ask students, what is the most thing you're proud of on this exam? What is something that you did and achieved that you're willing to get up to the front of the room and explain to the class? What are some things that you did that you can improve on? Did you study as much as you should? Did you take advantage of the resources available? So it really asks the students to take a step back and look at what they've achieved and how they can improve and be better. Not that they can't do it, but there's always a way to improve on that and, and how can they implement it and do that. Well, we can't wait to hear more about the results of that study. We'll have Thank to you. do a, a future interview <laughs> okay. on the teaching lab. Lastly, Dr. Miller, I know that your scholarship of teaching and learning work with respect to the peer learning study was conducted as part of High Point University's Teaching Scholars Program. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences with that program? Sure. I was really fortunate to be involved in the first cohort here of the Teaching Scholars at High Point University. Basically, this was a, a relatively small group of faculty from across all different disciplines here. And we all had kind of a shared interest in the scholarship of teaching and learning, as well as scholarly teaching. And some of the goals within the group, one was to design and implement and disseminate a SOTO project. The biggest benefit that I found was having people from different disciplines there. Some had published before in SOTO, some had not, but we were all kind of a sounding board for ideas. And that really helped shape this project that I spoke about with the differences in math skills. We met basically monthly as a group and we not only helped craft and shape these SOTO projects, but the second goal was really to have kind of a book club and talk about really key books that discuss pedagogical best practices and then say, how does this apply to the course that you teach? And coming from all those different perspectives, I think was a really big really big benefit. And then of course we all shared our work with each other. We had a teaching scholars showcase where we were able to share the results of our findings. And I know a number of us have gone on and, and been able to get this in a peer reviewed publication. It was a really great program for me, especially as a new faculty member. I think it was my second or third year that I began. It really just jump started these projects and gave me that time to really focus on implementing that project in my teaching schedule. Mm -hmm. well, I'm glad it was such an enjoyable and worthwhile experience for you. I know it is for our students, just looking at the results of your study. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Heather and Melissa. We've loved hearing about your study, and I want to let the listeners know that references to Dr. Miller and Dr. Saruji's publications can be found in the show notes. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've learned something new that will inform your teaching and ultimately be of benefit to your students. If you have an idea for a future show topic, please contact us at theteachinglabpodcast at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join us in two weeks when we will feature the work of another leading STEM teaching innovator.